It's a joy and privilege to uh, begin Romans chapter 5 this morning as we continue to move through this book. Uh, It's a challenge, it's deep, it's dense, uh, but I hope that it continues to shape your faith and how you think about God. I want to invite you to pray with me as I ask the Lord to use me despite my own weaknesses um, and that uh, you would be blessed anyway. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would do your work here, um, work that I can't do, that none of us can do to ourselves. Lord, you are the great surgeon, uh, you are the great uh, physician, and you can heal, and you can fix, and you can bind, um, and encourage, and uplift, where we are distraught, broken, weak. God, we ask that you would do that with this passage today. Would you use it to meet us right where we are and bring us to where you want us to be? And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Ben mentioned, uh, it is Reformation Day, remembering back when uh, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to that door of the church in Wittenberg. Um, And ever since then, we've had these debates with Catholic churches, and I, I, don't, I don't use the time here to bash other churches. Um, I, I believe there are probably good, well-intentioned Christians that go to a Catholic church. They probably are not aware of some of the things that they're being asked to hold to, or they've not thought of it. Uh, but I do find it very curious. I think the, the, the linchpin issue really is the thing that this text talks about today. And in fact, Romans was one of the, is some of these passages in Romans is what really got Martin Luther turned around, but he, he really wrestled with whether he's really in. That's the question. And if somebody asks you, are, are you saved, like fully? Not are you saved right now, but who knows about tomorrow? Like are you for sure that you're saved all the way? That's the question, right? I remember sitting in a class back when I was a student at Trinity And um, I was sitting around a table, and the teacher was uh, walking us through, um, not being presumptuous about our faith, not being presumptuous that you really are in. You know, the professor was reflecting on nights that he stays awake. And she said, am I really? Am I really saved? Am I? And I remember one of the students going, that's what I miss about the Catholic Church. You never really knew. I remember thinking to myself, why would that be the thing that you miss about the Catholic Church, and uh, I promptly dropped the class, but beside that point, (laughs) um, beside that point, I remember thinking, I think the reason why it's something that the student misses and something that I think that teacher was cherishing is because it sounds humble to say, I don't know for sure, and it sounds arrogant to say, I know for sure, And who are we as evangelical Protestants to say we know for sure? What I want to say to that is, what is the entire point of being a Protestant if you don't know for sure? That is the point. That's the point over which we divide. And it is not a Protestant evangelical thing because within Protestant evangelical churches, we don't know how to answer that question oftentimes. Do you know for sure you're saved tomorrow? is the question that Paul wants to address. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5, and I hope that 
if coming in here this morning, you were still not sure how to answer that question. Your child asks you, are you saved for sure? Your neighbor asks you, can you be sure? Because then Islam, you can't be sure. With Roman Catholicism, you can't be sure. With probably half of evangelicals, you can't be sure. Because you have to hold on. You have to make sure that you make it all the way. And God shrugs his shoulders like, well, I started you off, but I guess you dropped the ball. Some of us have been taught that way, and I hope, to, I hope that the Lord uses this passage to divest you of that totally today. Romans chapter 5, right at the top, we're only going to do verses 1 through 11 today, but he starts right at the top, and he, he, he reflects on this entire, remember where we've been, chapters 1 and 2 completely strip you down, you don't deserve God, you can't get to God, no matter whether you grew up in church, didn't grow up in church, you had exposure to scripture, you didn't have exposure to scripture, all you had to look at was mountains, or all you had to look at was Sunday school every week because your parents dragged you, you cannot get to God. You can't. You fall short. And just when the reader is like, oh man, I guess I'm done, he goes, you're not done. Then he comes in with justification by faith, by faith. That means whether you're an insider, outsider, grew up in church, didn't grow up in church, you can be saved through this mechanism of faith. He uses Abraham to drive that home in chapter 4. You remember that? Now, at verse 1 of chapter 5, he's reflecting all that. I've proven to you, reader, that you are justified by faith, by what God does, not by what you have done. Even if you've been really bad, you're justified by faith apart from works. Not because God doesn't care about works. We talked about that. But how are you saved? How are you justified, made right before God? It's through this faith that Abraham had, the same kind of faith he had. Now, verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, what do we have? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace. And as I sat at that table, look, I'm not I'm not a better theologian than these other students. I'm not smarter than that professor. I, maybe I shouldn't have dropped the class. Maybe it was presumptuous of me. Maybe I should have hung out there. But what disturbed me was it sounds like these brothers don't have peace. I mean, if I laid awake at night like, oh, is God, am I going to make it through the night? What if I had a sinful dream and in the dream I like it? Do you ever have a dream like that? You wake up and you feel guilty for liking it in the dream. You're like, that was a dream. Yeah, but was it not you? Something in me likes it. Am I out? It, to live in that kind of paranoia, how can I say I have peace with God? And he bases it on that justification that he just finished. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not arrogant to say I have peace with God. It's disrespectful of the work of Jesus Christ to say I don't have peace with God. If I've placed my faith and hope in what Jesus did, but it's not quite good enough. So it's not a place of arrogance. It's the person who thinks that they might be in, but maybe not. They're still, their faith is still wrapped up in what they bring to the table. But if I'm saying, no, it's apart from my works, it's all what Jesus did, it's not arrogant to say it, it's glorifying to God's name to say it, that God is an effective God, and when he deems to rescue, he doesn't kind of rescue, 
He doesn't throw a rope and like, let's see what you can do, right? He goes in there and gets you out. We've been justified by faith, therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we're going to see we've gained three things. We've gained God in three ways. First, because we've been justified by faith, we've gained peace with God. Second, because we've been justified by faith, verse 2, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And then he's going to talk about hope, but let's just pause there for a second. So I want you to see something important about uh, past tense and present tense. Remember when you were learning English and grammar and verbs and everything like that? Justification by faith is in the past. Check it out. Therefore, since we have been, this is something that's already true, we currently have peace. This is true in the past, now we have this currently. Then he says in verse 2, same thing, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now currently stand. Now, so far, what Paul is saying, because of this thing in the past, we've been justified because we've placed our faith in Christ, currently, right now, we have this reality. That doesn't fully answer the question, because what we're going to hear from those who are more confused on this point would, would be, yeah, we're saved now, but what about tomorrow? Hello? Who knows what happens tomorrow? So now Paul is going to say, not just because of the past is the present true, but because of the past, the future is true. And so he points us to our hope. He says, we've got this peace, we've got this grace in which we now stand, and then in the middle of verse 2, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, this future forward-looking hope. We're not there yet, but it's our hope. We know it's there, and we hope in it. And we, what we hope in is the glory of God. This is why I say by justification, through our justification by faith, we've gained God. It's not that we've gained these benefits of God, right? The glory of God that we fell short of, now we're there. And it's all of Him and all of who He is. It's not broken into little pieces. The very glory of God that we fell shy of is our actual hope. I couldn't imagine Paul answering the question, will you be saved? And him going, I hope so. I think so, maybe. If he used the word hope, it would be the way this text uses the word hope, and it's something that's sure. It's not like, I hope my favorite team wins the game today. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow so we can go on a hike. That's not what, how he's using hope. He's using hope as something that is sure, as sure, and on par with how sure the other things are. You for real have peace. You for sure have grace. And on the same level with those two things that are sure, you have hope, which is future. And the fact that it's future doesn't make it unsure because it's not based on works. We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. I love that, that vision of access. We come before God. I mean, like when you were a kid in school, some of us, I don't know about you, like some of us, we only ever were called to the principal's office if you were what? In trouble. You never were called into the principal's office. You're so awesome. I walk through the hallways and I just see how awesome you are. Principal ain't got time for that. 
This is the opposite. You do not get called into access into the presence of God if you're in trouble. When you're rescued from trouble, now you have the access. And that is something that is setting up this future hope because he's saying this hope means we don't lose the access later. That's why it's hope for the future. And now he, 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 he presses it because he's like, look, sometimes it's going to feel like you're out. Or you're going to be tempted to be out. You remember all the ups and downs that Abraham went through. And he went through some trials. He went through some tests of his faith. But Paul's like, that's exactly the point. All your trials and testing and sufferings even and the pains that you experience in life only secure the hope. Look at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Some of your translations say hope doesn't disappoint us. It's the same idea. So look at this chain. Because you've got one thing, you've got the next thing. And the next thing produces the next thing, and that just produces more hope. He says, we've got sufferings. On the face of it, that looks bad. Is God mad at me? Does God hate me? Did God kick me out because I'm suffering? No, no, no. God is a trainer. God is a coach. He knows it's going to hurt, but no pain, no gain. So the suffering produces something we call endurance. Because you almost threw up during that workout, you can do the next workout a little harder. And you put yourself through that pain so you can, it can produce something in you. So that is the chain he talks about in life. You've got suffering in your life, but God is using it. It's not because it doesn't prove that God has dumped you, that God doesn't like you, that God doesn't love you. It's the opposite. God is concerned to produce Christians that are steely and tough, not wimpy and weak. And the way he toughens you and matures you is through suffering in life. He's not Zeus angry throwing lightning bolts at people that disappoint him. It's for you. He doesn't say we rejoice in our sufferings because it makes God happy, period. Rejoice in sufferings because God uses it to produce endurance in us. Verse 4, what is endurance? What's endurance good for? Because endurance produces character. And the kind of character that it produces is hope. Suffering in this life forces us to loosen our grip on idols, on material things, on other things that we tend to put our confidence in and remind us that life is fleeting, we are fragile, we are frail, life is a mist, a vapor, it's over quick, it can be robbed at any moment, your health can change, your career can change, and that's scary, right? And he's saying when we, when, when Suffering messes with those things that we tend to put our hope in. It forces you to have the kind of character to put your hope in the right place, which is the only thing that doesn't change. The only thing that will still be there tomorrow is God himself. And your peace with him is only intact if your peace with him is based on God himself because everything else can change. And so even the sufferings in your life, he's saying, even the hardships that you endure, you endure for a reason. You endure them to produce a character. That character is a hopeful one. You're a kind of person that hopes in the right thing. You put your hope in the right place, verse 5, and hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given 
to us. It's amazing to me that some of my Christian friends throughout life who've had the flimsiest uh, understanding of the, the assurance of this hope claim to have the highest understanding of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit has to show up in fantastic ways, right? What does Paul say? When the Holy Spirit shows up, he's pouring a love into your heart. Not the kind of love that just kind of makes you sway back and forth and write like Christian Hallmark cards. But the kind of love that helps you understand your hope is for real. God loves you enough to make you make it all the way. That's how he proves his love to you. Now, we share a problem across all Christianity, no matter your denomination, your background, your upbringing. What we experience as the Holy Spirit's love is subjective. Is that really the Holy Spirit's love, or, or is just the sun out today and I kind of feel good? Is that really the Holy Spirit's love pouring into my heart, or did I just get a raise and I'm excited about it? My team just won, I'm excited about it. And so he's like, I, f- I feel you. I'm going to give you an objective reason so that you can interpret those subjective feelings. The subjective feelings are important. We don't want to just turn off our hearts and only exercise worship with our minds. But because the heart is difficult to interpret, we need the mind to be like the check, the coach, to make sure, yeah, that's the right feeling. Okay? So he's talking about this love poured into your heart. You might be thinking, well, how do you interpret that? It's kind of subjective. Cool. I'm going to give you the most objective reason to pin your hopes on. And it's actually a historical event. We just celebrated it with this broken bread and spilled uh, juice. Verse 6. How do you know that love is real? How do you know the Holy Spirit's been given to us? For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then he goes, who who does that? Nobody does that. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. He's saying, in real life, we don't really see this a lot. If we did see it, it would be somebody dying for someone they thought was worthy of it. People don't die for an unworthy cause, but some people might be wor- die for a worthy cause. But he's saying, think, think about the, the difference here is Christ died not because we're a worthy cause, not because I'm worth it, I'm worth it. Jesus died on the cross, and that shows me how worth it I am. Mm. I wasn't worth it, and yet he still died on the cross. That ramps it up. It's like when somebody gives you a gift, but you gave them your Christmas gift the week prior, and back in the recess of your mind, you're like, cool, because I thought you were going to leave me hanging. I mean, I gave you a gift. You're still appreciative, but in the back of your mind, it's kind of like, I mean, I gave you a gift. I gave you talk with your spouse like, hey, every Christmas the, the Johnson family is giving us a gift. And I just realized we never give them anything. And then you add them to your list. Why? You feel kind of obligated because they give you gifts. And Paul's trying to help you understand it is so not that. It is so not that. We don't enter into heaven like, I know you got me halfway there, God, but I mutually exchanged that gift, didn't I? I, I kind of I brought some stuff. I held on. I had a stick to itness, didn't I? No, you didn't. Neither did Abraham. 
If you go back and read those chapters in Genesis, I, I urge you to. If God didn't intervene in Abraham's life, Abraham wouldn't be in the hall of faith in Hebrews. And Abraham certainly wouldn't be in Romans 4. God is like, you idiot, here, let me help you with that. He did it again. Wow, let me help you with that again. Who kept Abraham? Abraham? God did. And he's using that example. It's right back in Romans 4. We just came out of it. And he's channeling that to say, God doesn't do this for how awesome Abraham was, and he didn't keep him because how great Abraham was. Because even though you might find somebody who dies for someone else because that someone else is so worthy of it, God did it differently because Jesus died when we were not worthy of it. We were still weak in verse 6. You need to make clear to your friend, your cousin, your neighbor, your coworker, who you're trying to explain the gospel to, and they're like, you know what, I will, I'll, I'll come to church, let me just clean up a few things. You're like, that's actually the easiest way to never gain God. Because God doesn't rescue us when we're cleaned up, He rescues us while we're still weak. And the posture of, let me do some stuff first to kind of lessen the obligation here a little bit, actually ruins the gospel. And that kind of gospel that you thought you grasped isn't the gospel. We need to be clear on that up front. It's while we were still weak. It's not the person that thinks they're kind of swimming, they're gulping some water, but they can kind of make it down the river. It's the person that's drowning. And at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly while we were still weak, yet before final judgment. I think that's what Paul means by the right time. Christ stepped in at the right time where you still had a chance to be rescued, but while you realize you can't rescue yourself, that's the right time. And God, verse 8, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, so that's why I said the love that he poured in our hearts needs an objective demonstration, an exhibit A, an example that he can point to and say, see that love you feel in your heart? It's not just a feeling. It's actual love, and I demonstrated it through Jesus on the cross God shows, He demonstrates His love for us, verse 8, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is why when we have a low understanding of the cross, we have a hard time following God when we're suffering. Because we feel like the suffering that we're experiencing proves that He doesn't love us. And in order for God to prove that he does love us, he has to remove the suffering. Heal me, God, or I'll realize you don't love me. Save my ailing uncle, God, or I'll realize you don't love me. And you'll notice what Paul's saying. He doesn't point to exhibit B, exhibit C. He doesn't have a whole lineup of exhibits to try to prove to you, the juror, that he actually loves you. He's got one exhibit. And every time you bring up the question, he'll point to the same exhibit. Here's exhibit A, and I'm not swapping slides. It's Jesus on the cross. So whatever you're experiencing, when you're tempted to think, does God not love me because of this? Well, the kind of God that even while you were still a sinner sent his perfect son to die on your behalf, does that sound like an unloving God or a loving God? Does that sound like a capricious God? Does it sound like a flaky, fickle God, that you can't tell if he really loves you or not? No, it doesn't. And because Jesus proved God's love on the cross, he doesn't have to prove it in the hospital room. 
We don't cling to the immediate solutions. We cling to this ultimate solution. That's the anchor, and that's our hope, and that's what proves that it's sure to the end. Why? Because if he removes this disease, who's to say you won't get another disease? If you escape death today, who's to say you won't escape death three weeks from now? If you hold on to this job, and let's say you even get a promotion in this job, who's to say that that company won't be bought out in a month from now, all your jobs are gone. So that's why we need Exhibit A. It's the one unchanging, indisputable fact of God's love. If He did that, I know He loves me, and so I interpret sufferings a different way now. We have now been justified, verse 9, since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood. It costs something. It's proven. The love that God sheds on us is proven by Christ's death on the cross. Because we have that and we've been justified that way, how much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God? Meaning, in the end, when there's that great day of judgment and He separates the sheep from the goats, the ins and the outs, those who are saved and those who are unsaved, and the unsaved get the wrath of God, and the saved are God's wrath is blocked by Christ? How will we know on that day we will escape the wrath of God? He's saying because of justification by Christ's blood. That's how you know. Not looking back on your past few weeks to see how good you've been. Not to examine yourself to see if you have the wherewithal to really follow through on things. You look to Calvary, where Christ died. So he's using an argument, if it's true here, well, it's got to be true there. If it's true that God held nothing back to save you and to justify you, make you right by taking all of your wrongs and putting it on Christ, if he did that, why would that not be secure enough in the end? If he did it here, he'll do it there. Now, our problem is we don't have that connection as strong as it is in Paul's mind. Paul's saying, if it's true here, then it must be true there. Well, where we slip and fall is sometimes, well, it's true here. I hope later it's true there. Maybe it'll be true then. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. This is the greater truth. Exhibit A proves that God is saving you. And if this proves that God is saving you, then it proves that he'll finish it. I'll just read it again. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved? If we have the present one, how much more will we have the future one? He doesn't, it's not a division in his mind. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life, so that on that day when you stand before God, I don't think he's going to say this, but the proverbial thing that Christians say, when you stand before God on that day and he's like, why should I let you into my heaven? There's no verse like that that he asked that question. But let's say that's the situation. Your answer is either going to be stuff you did, stuff you did in connection with some stuff that he did, or your only answer is exhibit A. Stuff you did. That's it. That's what makes it sure. Anything mixed with that makes it unsure. 
while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved. He's not even saying, if this is true, then this is true. He's saying, if this is true, then for sure this is true. How much more, twice, is this one true? When you don't have a real understanding of how you are justified, you lose everything. You don't know how to answer the question, are you saved? You don't know where you're going. If you're in an accident after church, God forbid, and your life is taken from you, you're not sure. It's because you don't, you're not sure about justification in the first place. If you're clear on justification and how justification happens in the first place, then you're sure about the future. And that's the kind of hope that Paul wants you to walk away with, not a flimsy, wishy-washy hope, a sure hope that knows, well, if he's justified me this way, then how much more will he justify me in the end, and I'll make it on the last day? Verse 11, he says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And you'll see that permeating this entire passage is Jesus Christ. We have peace through him in verse 1. It's through him that we have obtained this access into grace in verse 2. And his love is proven to us through his death in verses 6 through 9. It's the death of his son again in verse 10. And we rejoice in God through whom the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, Paul, I get it. Do you? Do you get it? Or do we close our Bible, sing our final song, and go home, and we're still paranoid? We still don't know how to answer the question, what about tomorrow? And Paul's saying, you need to believe that tomorrow's taken care of. Otherwise, if you don't, you don't really understand how today is taken care of. Maybe you're not saved. I think that's what Paul would say to somebody like that. Because he's going to say, if you don't understand the power of Exhibit A, then we need to unpack what Exhibit A is here. You don't understand justification, but once you do, then you know how to answer the questions about the future because God is the one that takes you all the way. I'm going to close with somebody who's said it better than I am able to say it, and I think you should look it up if you want to. It's a free article online. It's an old article, an essay written by J.C. Ryle, R-Y-L-E, and the paper is called Christ is All, Christ is All. I might sound a little old, but listen, just a few words here. This is how he starts wrapping up his paper at the end. Now I call on every reader of this paper who is a believer. I beseech you for your own sake to make sure that Christ is really and thoroughly your all in all. Beware of allowing yourself to mingle anything of your own with Christ. Do you have faith? That is a priceless blessing. Indeed, happy are those who are willing and ready to trust Jesus. But take heed, you do not make a Christ of your faith. Rest not on your own faith, but on Christ. You could chew on that for a while. Is my faith in Christ or is my faith in my faith? How strong is my faith? Will my faith last? Will my faith be there in the end? Your faith is in the wrong thing. Your faith is in your faith. Your faith needs to be in Christ. Does Christ change? Is Christ the same tomorrow? Would he save now but not save later? No. Well, then there is your answer. Is the work of the Spirit in your soul? Thank God for it. It is a work that shall never be overthrown. 
But oh, beware, lest unawares to yourself you make a Christ of the work of the Spirit. Rest not on the work of the Spirit, but on Christ. In other words, the proof of your salvation is not in, look, things in my life have changed. I quit smoking. I stopped cheating on my wife. I don't look at this stuff anymore. I'm a better person. Your faith is not in those things. Those are effects. Praise God for them. Your faith needs to be in Christ. Have you any inward feelings of religion and experience of grace? Thank God for it. Thousands have no more religious feelings than a cat or a log. So great that you have religious feelings. I don't know why he points out to a cat or a log. Maybe he's writing and he sees a fire and his cat. I don't know. All kinds of people have religious feelings. Um, Some don't at all. But he says this, but oh, beware lest you make a Christ of your feelings and sensations. They are poor, uncertain things and sadly dependent on our bodies and outward circumstances. Rest not a grain of weight on your feelings. Rest only on Christ. He says, learn learn to look more and more at the great object of faith, Jesus Christ, and to keep your mind dwelling on him. So doing, you would find faith and all the other graces grow through the growth at the time might be imperceptible to yourself, even though that growth might at the time be imperceptible to yourself. He would prove a skillful archer. We must not look at the arrow, but at the mark. Finally, he says, Alas, I fear there is a great piece of pride and unbelief still sticking in the hearts of many believers. Few seem to realize how much they need a Savior. Few seem to understand how thoroughly they are indebted to Him. Few seem to comprehend how much they need him every day. Few seem to feel how simply and like a child they ought to hang their souls on him. Few seem to be aware how full of love he is to his poor, weak people. And how ready to help them. And few therefore seem to know the peace and joy and strength and power to live a godly life which is to be had in Christ. Father, we don't want to leave here hanging our hopes on anything else but you. We don't want to hope in ourselves. We don't want to put our faith in our own ability to go all the way. Lord, as we close in the song, we want to rest our hope in you. We want to make sure that we know that we are made right because Christ makes us right. And that the full weight of our faith is on him and on his work so that he gets all of the glory, all of the boasting rights, and not us. But in exchange for boasting, we get to rest assured. And we don't have to lay awake at night paranoid about whether we will be with you in the end, but that we have peace with you now, and our hope is that we surely will have peace with you forever. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.